Hello, this is episode 243 and in it I'm going to be talking about what's been happening over the past couple of months, especially since discussing enoughness on the podcast. Over the past few months on the podcast, I've been sharing content and people who are focused on sustainable design, sustainable building materials and generally building less but better. And over the past few months, I've also had some amazing conversations off the podcast with podcast listeners, fellow professionals and Home Method members about what we've been talking about here. In fact, my inbox has never received as many messages about the podcast content as it has over the past few months. Mostly positive. However, not all of it has been positive and some of the content has been super challenging for some listeners. So I want to talk about this in this episode, plus share some of the other things that I've been learning over the past few months as I've personally been mulling over with how we've been, how we can have some bigger conversations here at Undercover Architect. Uh, look, this episode took a while to pull together. It's tricky to formulate my thoughts on this as there's still a work in progress. So I do hope that you'll be patient with me. I also hope that you'll be patient with my voice. I'm a little bit croaky today. Now, remember, you can grab a full transcript of this episode as a free downloadable PDF with links to the resources that I'll be discussing. You can get that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 243. That's the numbers 243. Now, let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to Elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers, and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses, and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect, and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building, and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about levelling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take and the best way to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. I'm going to kick off this podcast conversation by sharing some statistics and info with you that I've been learning and reading about lately. And to give you some time in context in case you're not listening to this episode at the time of its release, I'm recording this in late June 2022. 
Now, the Housing Industry Association, or the HIA, it released a bunch of statistics alongside their federal election imperatives in the lead up to the 2022 federal election in Australia. And these included information such as that there in 2020 to 2021, that financial year, there was over $108.1 billion of residential building work done. $108.1 billion of residential building work done in that 2020-21 financial year. Over the last 10 years, the housing industry has built over 1.86 million homes and Australia will need to build over 1.88 million new homes by 2031. So we're increasing pace a little bit. So, And for context, Australia has around 10.72 million homes in total. So 10.72 million homes in total and we need to build apparently another 1.88 million new homes by 2031. The United Nations Environment Program website, it includes information about the state of the building and construction uh, sector and it quotes the Global Status Report 2017 from the Global Alliance for Buildings and Construction and that finds that the sector continues to grow and it claims that globally the equivalent of Paris is added in new building every five days. The equivalent of Paris is added in new building every five days. Now, over the next 40 years... 230 billion square metres of additional buildings will be constructed. So that's commercial, residential, public, all of those kinds of things. But 230 billion square metres of additional buildings over the next 40 years. Now that is the equivalent of adding the floor area of Japan to the planet every single year until the year 2060. So our desire to build and to keep building, it is not slowing down, even with the supply chain issues, even with the rising costs and the other challenges that we're experiencing. So what does this mean for the environment? Well, the Footprint Company, which is an organisation that helps industry professionals with carbon calculations of the embodied energy and operational energy in the projects that they're designing, it states that the property and development industry drives over 50% of annual global carbon emissions. And they believe that 50% of the climate change challenge is solved by reducing the embodied carbon intensity of all buildings by half by 2030. And that means that we need to move to net zero carbon projects as quickly as possible in order to achieve that. So back in episode 232 and episode 233, Jeremy Spencer from Positive Footprints, he spoke to us about net zero homes and about what that means for the way that you build and renovate. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, highly encourage that you check them out. Really useful information. And what's interesting about all of this conversation about what we're learning is that it gives us a chance to think about embodied energy in our homes in a big way and actually know that it's going to have an impact. You know, this is very different to the big and the generally successful push that we've had in improving the energy efficiency of homes over the past decade or so, because energy efficiency has definitely been the focus for residential construction. Our National Construction Code, it currently requires a six-star energy rating on all homes. Hopefully, this is going to increase to seven stars in September 2022. And achieving energy efficiency, of course, it starts with designing for the orientation of the site, and then it leads to reviewing the energy use of the home in its heating and cooling loads. Look, at a six-star required benchmark, it's a pretty low bar, and it can often be achieved through increasing insulation, changing window types, regardless of what the design is doing overall. A focus on energy efficiency, unfortunately, has meant that homes can be large in size and design and also not necessarily suit the site. And then they can have just some upgrades in specifications in things like insulation, etc., in order to meet that six star benchmark. 
Add to that the use of solar power and the large roofscapes that these large homes provide, plenty of real estate for power generation. We, I think we've been enjoying a bit of a false economy about the sustainability of residential design and construction. And I've seen, I've seen many not really worry about how big their homes are or how much power they're using because they've just simply purchased a larger solar power system. This type of focus in the industry, it's helped us believe that you can build whatever you want and as much as you want, but just ensure that you achieve the energy efficiency and then you're seen as doing your bit. Now, as we move towards the new inclusions in the National Construction Code, designing a seven-star home, it's going to much more strongly factor in the importance of passive solar design and ensuring that the home suits the site. It'll be really difficult to design your home independent of the site's climate and orientation and still achieve the seven-star required rating. And as we move into whole-of-home assessments as part of these changes as well, we're going to start getting a better handle on how the size of our home really plays into its energy consumption overall. Now, the focus on energy efficiency, it has been about operational energy. It's not taken into account the embodied energy or the energy that it takes to physically create and transport all the materials, the products and the people involved in bringing lines on a page to reality as a finished home. And the industry is rapidly acknowledging that this singular focus on energy efficiency, it's not sufficient to achieve the benchmarks of lowering carbon emissions required for 2030 and 2050 targets. Now, embodied energy, it's already been in the conversations and calculations for large public, large residential and commercial projects, and it's now starting to land on the shoulders and in the laps of individual homeowners as something to be aware of as well. And interestingly, I've got Home Method members who are deliberately choosing products and materials that are low carbon as they set it as their priority for the product selection in their projects. So what is the embodied energy of the construction industry? Well, I'm going to pop some resources into the notes for this episode if you want to check out more information on this. There's been lots of reports done that actually document how much embodied energy is in the construction industry. And as an example, according to a report that was put together by Builders Declare for Climate Action called Achieving Real Net Zero Emission Homes, uh, done for the Northern Hemisphere, it stated that Canada builds 56.33 million square metres of low-rise homes each year. And that amount of building, 56.33 million square metres of low-rise homes, that's equivalent in material carbon emissions or what's called MCE to the carbon emissions of having 3.1 million cars on the road for a year. So the amount of building that's happening in embodied energy is the same as 3.1 million cars for a year. Or get this, it's equal to the carbon emissions of 3.6 coal-fired power plants. All right, so now even though we're not building in Australia as many square metres of home per year as Canada is, let's just say the embodied energy of the construction industry here is also massive. And what excites me about that is that it actually provides us with an equally massive opportunity to make a big difference through the choices that we make in how we build and renovate our homes. As we decarbonise the electricity grid as well through sourcing more of our operational energy from renewable sources, that embodied energy or the embodied carbon, that's going to become an even greater proportion of the overall carbon footprint of a project because the obviously the operational energy is become, going to become a lower percentage as we're using renewable resources. Now, far too often what I hear from homeowners is, is that they say look to me, look, it's just my house and compared to all the other building that's going on elsewhere, it's just not going to make that much of a difference. And this just isn't the case anymore, okay? Housing and the way that we build it and renovate it, it makes a massive difference. Unfortunately, in Australia though, the industry is so geared to the way that volume builders design and build 
And that's why this stuff is not part of our regular conversation because any change like this is a massive undertaking for them and many of them are pushing back on regulatory changes that are uh, proposed for the National Construction Code already and pushing back on other things as well. Now, as these regulatory changes come in and as we start seeing things like, for example, carbon taxes being legislated in countries overseas, it's going to become more and more necessary to consider these things as part of you creating your future home. So what do we do about it? You know, as individuals building and renovating our own homes, what do we actually do about it? Well, in a recent presentation I saw, this may sound a little bit contentious, but an academic from University of New South Wales who lectures architectural students, he said that one of our first questions as professionals, he was, he was addressing professionals in this regard, industry professionals, he said one of our first questions actually needs to be, do we need to build at all? Now, that's a pretty bold place for someone in our industry to start, given that the industry kind of relies on people continuing to build in one way or another. But it's actually really interesting as a proposition. And so it's really good as a first question for someone in the industry. Now, the next question, of course, follows on from that is how much do we need to build? Can we build less? Can we renovate instead of demolishing and building new? Can we build a smaller home that still achieves our goals and our desires? Two of the episodes that I shared on the podcast recently were conversations that I had with Jane Hilliard about her practice Designful and in particular discussing their ethos of enoughness. After those two episodes, I received a lot of messages and both, you know, really, really positive and a few that were not not so positive. And it's a bit weird to be talking about this on the podcast like this because, you know, this is almost a conversation that I wish I could have with you back and forth that we could actually sit down together and we could nut out these big ideas and we then could talk about it in a practical sense. And, you know, for this to be a to and fro of diving into kind of these big concepts and then what does that actually mean for your home, your floor plan, your design? Because whenever we're talking about your home, I know just how personal it really is. And, and so when that personal stuff, when that personal stuff about your home is discussed along ideas about, you know, values and how much we think about, you know, what we should be consuming and what our version of the future is that we're going to create, you know, these are ideas that they can be, you know, prickly and uncomfortable to sit with. And, you know, to be frank with you, the ideas that Jane and I discuss, they're not new by any means. You've most likely heard me talk about build better and build less. There's smaller but smarter. I know that Lighthouse Architecture and Science, they talk about that a lot. There's, of course, quality over quantity. Uh, People-oriented design, they talk about the least house um, possible. So, you know, all of these things, they're about choosing to create a smaller home that consumes less overall, less of everything, less space, less materials, less energy, less of everything. Now, I was recently interviewed on ABC Radio Brisbane about all of this as well. It was really awesome to hear their interest in it and they were actually keen to position this approach as a way of combating the rising construction costs and the rising cost of living as well, whilst doing projects that are more sustainably minded. This word enoughness, it is a really brilliant way of discussing it because it actually calls on you to personally assess this for yourself. This is the thing. No one can tell you what enough is for you. All right. It is a really personal introspection of determining what enough looks like for you. And that's going to be different for all of us. However, it's in this introspection that that confrontation, that prickliness can also occur. And when that's coupled with this discussion that Jane and I had about what is your fair share, that also, that can be really prickly and uncomfortable to think about. You know, in Australia, we can often think that we're a small country with a relatively small population and really what we do doesn't make that big dent, you know, bigger dent on the world. 
However, for me, it's actually been really interesting to learn over the past couple of months. And this was something that I knew anecdotally and I knew from the other research that I'd done, but just to see it like a stat like this was really, uh, was really, it just really landed with me. So in Australia, we consume 4.7 times the safe and sustainable limit of materials and products. So annually, 4.7 times the safe and sustainable limit of materials and products. That's all kinds of materials and products, but construction makes up a massive percentage of that. Now, Sri Lanka, by comparison, it consumes 0.8 times the safe and sustainable limit. So we're almost five times what we should be what we should be consuming in order to be safe and sustainable. We also import a lot of the components that go into our building materials and products from China. <laughs> China does make a big dent on the world in its not so great manufacturing processes and the sheer quantity with which it produces things. So even, you know, when we're trying to buy local and try to reduce our carbon footprint, if we're not looking at the core products that have gone into what we're buying and where they've come from and how they've been manufactured, then we can be unwittingly making poor choices about the embodied energy that we're putting into our home. Now, interestingly, it wasn't the general talk about enoughness that particularly challenged people. Of course, you know, that was that that what they did get a reaction um but many you know far far on the other end of the scale was how positive it was for so many you know many of you actually got in touch with me to tell me how much you loved you know that conversation how much you loved that you now felt that you had a word and a way to articulate the thoughts about what you were seeking to achieve for your future home and, and a way to sort of you know frame it and in fact you know I had one of my live life build my other business where we coach builders uh, one of my live life build builder members he actually told me that he'd had to have a difficult conversation with a client that week um, about their project because their project cost was starting to sneak up over their budget and they're working together in the pack process and his feedback to them was that you know whilst they could substitute they could look at selecting different finishes and save in that way the most impactful thing that they could do to lower their cost was to reduce the overall area of the home now this homeowner went away um, and, you know, agreed that it was probably worth looking at. And then they carved about 30 square metres off their floor plan by just reducing some of the, sp the spaces and the size of the home overall. Now, the builder said to me that when he actually asked the client how she felt about that, she said at first that she'd not felt great, that it had felt like, you know, a big compromise. But then by chance, just by coincidence, she'd managed to catch these recent podcast episodes about enoughness that I'd had with Jane Hilliard. And she actually then realised that by reducing the size of the home, they were creating a much better outcome for themselves, a home that was far more aligned with them personally. And this has been the resounding feedback that it's actually provided a great anchor for you needing some, you know, for those of you that are needing somewhere to return to and really determine if the home that you're creating is really for you. And if it's really perfect for you, for your budget, for your site, for your lifestyle. You know, for some, it's given you permission to reassess things and with increasing costs and supply challenges, that's meant being, you know, potentially able to reconsider whether you include certain spaces in your home or not and whether they're really as necessary as you thought they were. And, you know, it's worth remembering in all of this, what we consider normal now, it was not normal a decade ago. It was not even, you know, it was not normal 20 years ago. Take the butler's pantry, for example, and you've probably heard me say this story before. You know, I remember designing high-end multi-million dollar riverfront homes about 19 years ago they did not have butler's pantries and they had four bedrooms and uh, two bathrooms <laughs> so and about 16 years ago we designed some very high-end penthouse riverfront apartments and we introduced a tiny butler's pantry 
to those um, those riverfront apartments, very high-end uh, riverfront apartments. Now, the thing is, butler's pantries now, they are fairly customary, okay? In some cases, these butler's pantries are like a whole second kitchen. And of course, alongside that, we're doing more bedrooms, more living spaces, more bathrooms, bigger garages, all of these kinds of things. Now, what I love, many of you are questioning this. You're actually questioning the status quo. You're questioning this real estate checklist of rooms that you're supposed to include when you're building or renovating. You're questioning everything, which is great. That's really what I would love for you, an attitude of curiosity so that you can create your home with intention in every decision that you make. However, hearing this conversation wasn't a positive experience for everyone. I, of course, got the understandable questions asking if Jane Hilliard even has kids. You know, does this woman know what it's like to live in a family home? And I can assure you that Jane does have kids. She has two. They're 11 and 13. She and a partner and their kids as well as a couple of dogs. They share their compact home all together. However, what really surprised me was the reaction that I got to the discussion about how many bathrooms a home, a family home really needs. Now, in this episode with Jane, we discussed the idea of only having one bathroom in a family home. It's something that Designful do. They, they question it with their clients and it's something that they, they workshop. Uh, but they design it in so it enables simultaneous use for the various functions through how you arrange the privacy in that planning. So Jane from Designful, uh, they call it the deconstructed bathroom. I've always called it the three-way bathroom. It basically puts the vanity in one space, the toilet in another behind a door and the shower and the bath behind a door as well. And commonly when I talk about this, I hear people say to me, oh, you know, there were homes in the 70s like that, homes in the 50s and 60s. That's the way bathrooms are always designed back then. Well, this idea, this proposition that a family home could just have one bathroom, that, that was the tipping point. <laughs> that was the thing that many really struggled with. I received emails and messages that suggested that we were out of touch and that at a minimum, a second toilet is necessary. It's a necessity to, uh, to manage the stress of a busy family home, not a luxury, but a necessity. Mentioning fair share, that also elicited some not so positive responses with some suggesting that it was judgmental, unsympathetic and even evangelistic to suggest to people what to do and what types of homes they should create. Now, newsflash, there is loads here on Undercover Architects suggesting what you do and what type of home you create when you build or renovate. It's kind of all I talk about, but not all of the suggestions that I make though are personally challenging or confronting like the idea of only doing your fair share or perhaps considering just having one bathroom. Understandably, totally get it. That was extra prickly for some to hear. Now, I want to remind you, okay, at Undercover Architect, I've always been clear about one big thing. I bring the information and the knowledge and you decide what to do with it. It's your home, it's your money, it's your future, and that makes it your choice. I am not here to shame you for your choices either, okay? It is your business what you choose, only yours, okay? You get to choose. You do you, you always do you. And that includes thinking about how many bathrooms you want to include and what you want, what, what you decide your fair share is when creating your future home. To be frank with you, I've actually been, I've been nervous about bringing too much of that kind of personally confronting stuff to the podcast. Nervous about talking about consumption, about what we're doing to the environment when we build and renovate. And this hamster wheel that I think that we put ourselves on when we buy more, we build more, but we try and stretch our budget and ourselves over it in thinner and thinner ways. Because I know that stuff can be hard to hear. And the messages that I receive lately, they really show that. It does feel though, 
like the movement towards a more mindful and intentional approach to renovating a building is growing significant momentum with a much stronger rejection of consumption and a bigger questioning of the pursuit of the magazine-worthy home. I've had many say that to me, both professional colleagues and homeowners that I speak with, that they're really feeling this growing drive, this growing momentum in terms of how people are thinking about this stuff. And like Joe Darlow from the Hemp Building Co that we had on the podcast, you know, in our recent conversation, he's, you know, he talked about the fact that the ideas that he's been talking about and the ideas that he sees being talked about in the industry, that they're moving from what was called crazy some years ago to now being discussed as progressive to gradually becoming more and more mainstream. However, you know, alongside of this, I'm also aware that it could just be a case of my bubble growing. You know, the algorithm, it's it's built to feed us more of what we're interested in. And it's much easier these days to connect with more like-minded people who have a similar worldview and desires to us. And when it comes to it, I don't have to dive very, you know, too far into Facebook groups of homeowners building and renovating to find that there's still so many other types of homes being built. You know, big big homes with little or no sustainability considerations at all. Homes that are, are really are about that vision of the big magazine and Pinterest worthy dream home. However, even with these nerves and this awareness that it's not how many still are building or renovating, I know the kinds of conversations that I want to be having with you and the types of guests and information that I want to bring you here on the podcast and through Undercover Architect. I want to create more conversation that could inspire you to question the status quo, to be curious about your home being more than a real estate checklist and, you know, help you figure out what you really need for a great home and a great life without making this about shoulds and should nots or you must or you must not. And of course, all of this happens alongside my own exploration, my own learning, my own figuring all of this stuff out. You know, I have a confession to make. I know I can be judgmental by nature. So I'm really conscious that I'm not telling you what you should or shouldn't do. I'm hoping that this always feels like a a generous and a loving and a kind invitation. And that you're aware too that I'm not perfect. You know, it can be scary to talk about this stuff, especially from a public platform. You know, some of this is challenging for me too. If you got to see my fix a floor plan session that I did a couple of months ago, I hosted that for all Undercover Architect course members and it now lives as a recorded session inside uh, Home Method. You'll have seen me go through thinking the thinking that I've been having for our own home renovation. And my thoughts about it, they've definitely changed over time as we've been living here. You know, at the time of recording this, we've been here almost eight years And it's gone from this idea of this big undertaking that was going to involve lots of extra space, you know, and and extensions and things like that to a much smaller project working within the existing floor plan and trying to reconfigure that to achieve what we need and to make it more comfortable. So yes, in that process, the spaces are going to be smaller. As a result too, because we're renovating an existing footprint, some of those rooms, they won't be the ideal dimensions that I teach inside my online courses and programs. You know, dimensions that if we did do it in extension, we could achieve them. If we created new spaces or we partially demolished, you know, the home as part of that renovation. But doing it this way, doing less, well, it just feels much more in alignment with the values that I've been honing for myself over the past decade. And yet whilst all of this is still in the works, whilst my, my husband and I are still working through what we're, you know, what this renovation is going to be and we're still having conversations about whether it's the right approach and we're making the right decision, you know, I'm, I'm an architect who has an online business. Shouldn't we be building more, doing more, creating the ultimate home with my know-how and experience and access to great materials and products? Shouldn't this be the chance for a showcase? Shouldn't it, you know, be trying to turn it into a high-performance home? 
all of these kinds of things do be, you know, they do sort of float around in the, the, re- the resolution of what we're going to do. But ultimately I keep thinking about this. The ideal home, it also delivers the, our ideal lifestyle and it's a balance of wants versus needs, of what's consumption-based versus actually enriching and about lifestyle enhancement. And so what's in alignment with our ideal lifestyle? And thinking like that, it gives me greater clarity about what's going to be better suited to us and to our future ideal home. I want to tell you though, it's not easy pursuing this alternative way of creating a home though. I know that for sure and I see that for anyone trying to build or renovate using enoughness. You're going to meet opposition. It's not just your own journey. You'll potentially have to defend your choices to others as you create your future home. Plus, you're going to, of course, have to try and stay on track as you're inundated with all the suggestions, the imagery and the aspirational ideas about what you're supposed to want in your future home. And that can be really, really challenging. This can be the unexpected side effect of embracing enoughness, that you find that the people around you have very different core values to you or they aren't as willing to walk the walk in their way as you are and that you're having to defend your choices as well. Or you'll find that whilst you know that you think these things are important, that when it comes to your home, you just want to do it the way you want to do it. You don't have to think about honouring your values or making an example or being the one to make the choice for the planet, especially when your neighbour doesn't seem to care and the real estate values and public opinion will reward them for it. There's always so much to personally unpack here and chances are I'm not the one to be unpacking that with you. But if you think that renovating and building is just about creating rooms and spaces, you may be surprised at the personal journey it becomes for you if you let it and what that helps you discover about yourself as well. Money mindset, ideas about status and identity, expression of core values, subconscious beliefs about ownership and entitlement, emotional attachments and aspirations in the idea of home and what it represents for you and what that means about you. There can be so much personally involved here. Look, Undercover Architect is not about tiny homes or about telling you that you're wrong for creating the home that you are if it's over a certain number of square metres or you really want all the bathrooms, as one of my home method members actually said to me. I want all the bathrooms. So, You know, Undercover Architect is all about creating fantastic, functional, feel-good homes and creating them in an intentional way that has a meaning for you personally, whatever that looks like. And I do hope that's what you come here for. Look, before I wrap up this episode, there's some other things that I want to touch on that I know I've been personally mulling over and considering how I can bring them to you in a way that's generous and inclusive and kind and not judgmental and alienating. Because I feel like this enoughness stuff is just scratching the surface of actually all the things that are happening in the industry right now. And there's so much exciting stuff that is going to totally transform that we, the way that we build and renovate. And it's really about thinking about, you know, how quickly we want to embrace this. And I keep learning about these things and then thinking, you know, how does this relate to you, your personal journey, to, to you who comes here to the Undercover Architect podcast and to learn about building and renovating? How is what I'm learning applicable to you? How can it transfer? You know, you as the individual homeowner who are financing this from your own savings, your own borrowings or a combination of both, and you're staking so much of your future lifestyle and financial stability on the choices that you're making and the project that you're undertaking. And most likely you're only planning on doing this once or twice in your life. How can these big industry changes, these big opportunities that are out there, you know, that professionals are talking about, how can that be relevant to you 
and not involve an impossible cost to you at the same time. Because we know that the economic structures at play, they still place so much emphasis on your personal wealth being tied up in the asset value of your home and how it stacks in real estate value. And the metrics driving that value are far too often at odds with the personal choices that we'd like to make for a sustainable future. Frankly, sometimes I can't reconcile or find how to translate it to your own experience without you know, without knowing that I'm going to be asking you to be an early adopter or perhaps prioritise a value-based choice you know, that may not make financial sense. Right now, one of the things that the industry is talking a lot about is regenerative design. And of course, this is not entirely new, uh, but it's it seems to be newer to our regular conversation. And it's definitely seen as a necessary approach that goes beyond sustainability and actually thinks about how our project is going to contribute and connect and correct the balance. Three principles of regenerative design are balance between people and planet, partner thinking and a systems perspective. And so through this, everything is connected. Now, when I attended a presentation about regenerative design recently, I asked one of the speakers about how this works for the individual homeowner who's building and renovating in their suburban location. And she just, she spoke about the opportunity that homeowners have when renovating and building to consider, you know, connection and country and really think about the boundaries that are beyond just the four edges of your site. So what could this look like? Well, An example that she talked about was a commercial project. It meant that the owners of a large office building knew that they couldn't provide enough renewable energy from the space that they had available on their site. So they partnered with some regional farmers to set up solar farms and the power that they're supplying through solar power offsets the power that they're drawing from the grid in their location. Yeah, so this is definitely something that you as the individual homeowner, you can't necessarily replicate this, but just stick with me for a minute, okay? Regenerative design really the thing to understand about it is it flips our current economic structure on its head. It's a relational approach to creating your design, not a transactional one. So it's about shifting from what is called the ecosystem, where the human and the economy drives everything, to an ecosystem where it's about us as humans as part of the overall system on equal pecking order with everything else that we share that ecosystem with. So in a suburban home, that might mean connecting in with a neighbourhood community garden or even creating them uh, on your verge or even in your front garden itself. It might be thinking about the fauna that could be in your neighbourhood and how your site can be more hospitable for them. It can mean seeing country or the land that we're building on as a client or as a stakeholder in our project, not just the block that we're going to place our home on. When it comes to country and this idea of how we incorporate that into our approach to building and renovating, I've been look, I've been trying to wrap my head around how do we have a conversation about the fact that we are investing and building wealth on land that has Indigenous ownership that was never ceded. You know, in response to this, of course, many larger projects, they're creating their own reconciliation action plans, which is fantastic to see. And if you're keen to see one, the innovative and not-for-profit organisation Nightingale House, they have one published on their website and I'll pop that link in the resources. In Victoria, There's a pay the rent scheme where you can make a one-off or ongoing donation. And this model for paying the rent, it transfers money on grassroots to grassroots basis and it doesn't involve governments or big business and is ultimately about acknowledging the sovereignty of Indigenous people. You know, how do we think about this in our own homes if we feel that it's something we want to consider? Is it that we include a contribution to a pay the rent scheme or we provide support and advocacy for Indigenous people in some way during the process of building or renovating or we do that on an ongoing basis? 
How do we think about country and honouring the relationship with it when we're building or renovating anywhere, especially in inner city or suburban locations that lack little inherent natural landscape? I'm still working this one out, you know. I'm still thinking all of this over and trying to work out, you know, and I'm, I'm wondering if you've been thinking about this kind of stuff at all too. Another big topic that just really does sit alongside homes is homelessness. And if you get Sanctuary Magazine, you may have seen the ads for Homes for Homes. It's an organisation that gives you the opportunity to register your property so that when it sells, whenever that is, 0.1% of the sale price is donated to help build homes for those in need. Now, so far, Homes for Homes has granted over $1.28 million in funding to 13 projects across Victoria, Northern Territory, Queensland and the ACT. And these projects will provide housing for 96 people. And in 2022, a further $160,000 will be granted across West Australia and New South Wales. Hey, Indigenous land rights and homelessness, big topics, I know. And uh, look, I'm never sure about talking with you about these things, especially when I don't have it worked out myself. This is the thing though, is having a house of your own a human right? Or is it just for those who feel that they've worked hard enough, earned enough, sacrificed enough to be able to purchase, build and renovate? Is it an asset that can be traded for profit to build personal wealth? And is it the responsibility of us as individuals to address issues such as regeneration, Indigenous land rights and homelessness as we build and renovate our individual homes? Or is this what our taxes should be for? Can our advocacy work, our values, what we volunteer our time to do and and donate to and the causes that we believe in Can they sit separate to how we build and renovate our homes? Or should our projects, probably the biggest investment that we make in the biggest asset we own, be the most honest reflection of the values that we hold dear and the worldview that we have? I know that these are some of the things that I'm thinking about at the moment, especially as I think more and more seriously about our own renovation and our home ownership in general. And I've kind of thought aloud on this podcast with you and I hope that that's been okay. Undercover Architect, it operates on a mantra of a rising tide floats all boats and it's always been about levelling the playing field and I suppose if I'm inhabiting that in its truest sense, this is the stuff I need to lean into because the playing field can be bigger than our residential construction industry and all boats is obviously more than just our own and the ones immediately around us. And whilst the great Australian dream usually means a home of our own, it is still a super privileged position to be in to have a home at all. So I'm trying to work out how I stay open with you about these things that I'm personally and professionally grappling with and mulling over whilst I still create a place and a community that we can all feel welcome and comfortable to share what we want to do personally with our homes and do that without judgment. Because like I said up front, I bring the information and the knowledge and you decide what to do with it, okay? It is your home, your money, your future, and that makes it your choice. Okay. Now, lastly, before we wrap up the podcast episode, I just want to leave you with something that the principal at my kid's school, he calls himself a conductor. And it's a quote that he often, he quotes to us. I I don't know who said the original quote, but this is what he often says to us is, the fish is the last one to discover the water. The fish is the last one to discover the water. Now, He uses it at school to discuss how we see education and to recognise how deeply ingrained our views can be and how when we're so immersed in something, we're often the last to question it or to assess if it could be anything different. 
Now, I think about this statement a lot these days as I learn about new things in an industry that I've been in for over 27 years now, as I have conversations with other industry professionals and with you about how we're thinking about our homes and the future that we're creating through building and renovating them. What water am I in that I haven't discovered yet, that I'm so immersed in as the status quo that I've not questioned whether it's the water that I want at all? It certainly provides an interesting perspective that encourages curiosity and awareness. And maybe you can try thinking like this too. If you've made it this far in the podcast, thank you for listening. It, Like I said, it took me quite a while to pull together my thoughts for this episode and it's also to be okay with the fact that many of these thoughts that I'm he- sharing here, they're, they're not fully formed. They're still half-baked. You know, more questions and musings really than decisions that I've arrived at. And there's definitely a certain indulgence to be thinking out loud about these things on this episode with you to be, you know, to not be deliberately instructive, to instead be sharing thoughts and ideas that I'm being challenged by and I'm staying curious about. However, I do hope that in doing so, in sharing my thoughts like this, it's helping you see just how impactful your home can be, the reach that your home can have and the various ways that you can consider what that impact actually is. And I do hope that this information is received in the way that it's intended, with love and generosity, staying curious to what's possible and available to us in creating the future that we want when we create our future home. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.